0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from the New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor at the New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Last Night by James Salter.
1: He had known her when she was in her 20s, long legged and innocent. Now he had slipped her as in a burial of sea beneath the flow of time.
0: Last Night was published in the New Yorker in 2002. It was chosen by Thomas McGuane, seven of whose stories have been published in the magazine. McGuane's many novels include The Bushwhacked Piano, 92 in the Shade, and The Cadence of Grass. He's also written screenplays and several books of nonfiction. He joins me from the studios of Peak Recording and Sound in Bozeman, Montana. Hi, Tom.
1: Good morning, Deborah.
0: So James Salter has published a couple of nonfiction pieces in the magazine, um, but Last Night is the only story of his that's that's been in The New Yorker so far. Were you, when you chose it, were you just looking for a story by Salter, or was this story in particular very memorable for you?
1: Well, I picked the story because, in some ways because uh, oh, I wanted to find out why I'd been so moved by it. I wanted to find out if I had been reasonably moved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it was one I kind of wanted to pick apart rather than just being kind of crushed by it, because it's a very powerful story, I think.
0: Now, before he became a writer, Salter was a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force who flew more than 100 combat missions in the Korean War. And his first novel, The Hunters, was about that experience. But since then, in his fiction, his most frequent subject is not flying, it's sex and it's aftermath. Um, and that's that's true in this story as well. What? How would you describe Salter's sexual politics?
1: Well, he seems to – first of all, he seems to be very interested in uh – in the way women look at sex, mm-hmm. and uh, my feeling is that he thinks sex is uh, generally sort of unfair to women. Um, I think this—that's a bit about what this story is. And um, I, th- in terms of his, it's hard to say what I think of, because he sees women in, in a highly sexualized way, mm-hmm. and his novels have, uh, have have been nearly pornographic in right. some cases. Well,
0: he's best best known for the novelist Sport and a Pastime*, which is very Absolutely. much about a, a sexual affair.
1: It was. It was that, and it was very, very much on on the edge about that sort of thing. Yeah, I think this is too. I mean, uh, in, some, in some ways, I find this story a bit more shocking. I mean, this is um, kind of impeccable horror, very carefully written in this kind of crepuscular atmosphere.
0: You're you're quite a bit younger than Salter. Did you read him when you were starting to write?
1: Well, I, I'm trying to think. You know, I've ha- I'm, I was drawn to the fact that he wrote about very uh, unusual subjects uh, for literary fiction. I mean, writing about fighter pilots and uh, mountain climbers and um, uh, sort of sporting types you know, must have appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And he writes uh, he writes such a, a marvelous, clean prose that's a little bit reminiscent of the era of literary fiction that I kind of grew up in. It's you know kind of Richard Yates and Cheever and. Lots of booze, a lot of lots of these twilight atmospheres, this kind of suburban corruption, and so on and so forth. That kind of marked some of the better fiction writing when I was coming up as a fiction writer.
0: That that very sort of terse prose style. You feel that that was more common in those days.
1: I think so, and this, so it has a kind of a nostalgic quality, if that uh-huh. could be said. I think nowadays we're a little bit looser, a little bit more intuitive, uh, less afraid of uh, surprise, comedy, and so on.
0: Well, speaking of surprises, um, last night has a, a few plot twists that we don't want to give away. But do you feel that there's anything we should be paying special attention to as you're reading it?
1: I think that any time a story is, is pow- as powerful as this, it's it, it, in, in, in some ways lacking a kind of strategic tidiness. Um, at least when you look at it again, you have to go back and find out how you were positioned for the surprises. mm mm-hmm and whether or not that positioning was really legitimate. I, I don't want to give away too much at this stage, but they're very, quite early on we're set up for uh, something that may or may not be fair, but is very definitely effective.
0: We'll talk more after the story. Now here's Tom McGuane, reading Last Night by James Salter.
1: Walter Such was a translator. He liked to write with a green fountain pen that he had a habit of raising in the air slightly after each sentence almost as if his hand were a mechanical device. He could recite lines of Bloch in Russian and then give Rilke's translation of them in German, pointing out their beauty. He was a sociable but also sometimes prickly man who stuttered a little at first and who lived with his wife in a manner they liked. But Marit, his wife, was ill. He was sitting with Susanna, a family friend. Finally they heard Marit on the stairs, and she came into the room, she was wearing a red silk dress in which she had always been seductive, with her loose breasts and sleek dark hair. In the white wire baskets in her closet were stacks of folded clothes, underwear, sport things, nightgowns, the shoes jumbled beneath on the floor. Things she would never again need. Also jewelry, bracelets and necklaces, and a lacquer box with all her rings. She had looked through the lacquer box at length and picked several. She didn't want her fingers, bony now, to be naked. "'You look really nice,' her husband said. "'I feel it's as if my first date or something,' she said. "'Are you having a drink?' "'Yes.' "'I think I'll have one. Lots of ice,' she said. She sat down. "'I have no energy,' she said. "'That's the most terrible part. It's gone. It doesn't come back. "'I don't even like to get up and walk around.' "'It must be very difficult,' Susanna said. "'You have no idea,' she said. "'Walter came back with the drink and handed it to his wife. "'Well, happy days,' she said. "'Then, as if suddenly remembering, she smiled at them. "'A frightening smile seemed to mean just the opposite. "'It was the night they had decided would be the one. "'On a saucer in the refrigerator, the syringe lay. "'Her doctor had supplied the contents.' but a farewell dinner first, if she were able. It should not be just the two of them, Merritt had said, her instinct. They had asked Susanna rather than someone closer and grief-filled, Merritt's sister, for example, with whom she was not on good terms anyway, or older friends. Susanna was younger. She had a wide face and high, pure forehead. She looked like the daughter of a professor or banker, slightly errant, dirty girl, one of their friends had commented about her with a degree of admiration. Susanna, sitting in a short skirt, was already a little nervous. It was hard to pretend it would be just an ordinary dinner. It would be hard to be off-handed in herself. She had come as dusk was falling. The house, with its lighted windows, every room seemed to be lit, had stood out from all the others like a place in which something festive was happening. Marat gazed at things in the room, the photographs with their silver frames, the lamps, the large books on surrealism, landscape design or country houses that she had always meant to sit down with and read, the chairs, even the rug with its beautiful faded color. She looked at it all as if she were somehow noting it, when in fact it all meant nothing. Susanna's long hair and freshness meant something, though she was not sure what. Certain memories are what you long to take with you, she thought, memories from even before Walter, from when she was a girl. Home, not this one, but the original one with her childhood bed, the window on the landing out of which she had watched the swirling storms of long ago winters, her father bending over her to say good night, the lamplight in which her mother was holding out a wrist trying to fasten a bracelet. That home. The rest was less dense. The rest was a long novel so like your life, You were going through it without thinking, and then one morning it ended. There were bloodstains. "'I've had a lot of these,' Merat reflected. "'The drink?' Susanna said. "'Yes. Over the years, you mean. "'Yes. Over the years. "'What time is it getting to be?' "'Quarter to eight. her husband said. "'Shall we go?' "'Whenever you like,' he said. "'No need to hurry.' "'I don't want to hurry.' She had, in fact, little desire to go. It was one step closer.' "'What time is the reservation?' she asked. "'Any time we like. "'Let's go, then.' "'It was in the uterus and traveled from there to the lungs. "'In the end, she had accepted it. "'Above the square neckline of her dress, "'the skin, pallid, seemed to emanate a darkness. "'She no longer resembled herself. "'What she had been was gone. "'It had been taken from her. "'The change was fearful, especially in her face.' She had a face now that was for the afterlife and those she would meet there. It was hard for Walter to remember how she had once been. She was almost a different woman from the one to whom he had made a solemn promise to help when the time came. Susanna sat in the back as they drove. The roads were empty. They passed houses showing a shifting bluish light downstairs. Merritt sat silent. She felt sadness, but also a kind of confusion— She was trying to imagine all of it tomorrow without her being here to see it. She could not imagine it. It was difficult to think the world would still be there. At the hotel, they waited near the bar, which was noisy. Men without jackets, girls talking or laughing loudly, girls who knew nothing. On the walls were large French posters, old lithographs in darkened frames. I don't recognize anyone, Merritt commented. Luckily, she added... Walter had seen a talkative couple they knew, the Apthals. Don't look, he said. They haven't seen us. I'll get a table in the other room. Did they see us, Merritt asked, as they were seated? I don't feel like talking to anyone. We're all right, he said. The waiter was wearing a white apron and a black bow tie. He handed them the menu and a wine list. Can I get you something to drink? Yes, definitely, Walter said. He was looking at the list on which the prices were in roughly ascending order. There was a Cheval Blanc for $579. This Cheval Blanc, do you have this? The 1989, the waiter asked. Bring us a bottle of that. What is Cheval Blanc? Is it white? Susanna asked when the waiter had gone. No, it's red, Walter said. You know, it was very nice of you to join us tonight, Merritt said to Susanna. It's quite a special evening. Yes. We don't usually order wine this good, she explained. The two of them had often eaten here, usually near the bar with its gleaming rows of bottles. They had never ordered wine that cost more than $35. How was she feeling, Walter asked while they waited. Was she feeling okay? I don't know how to express how I'm feeling. I'm taking morphine, Merritt told Susanna. It's doing the job, but... She stopped. There are a lot of things that shouldn't happen to you, She said. Dinner was quiet. It was difficult to talk casually. They had two bottles of the wine, however. He would never drink this well again. Walter could not help thinking. He poured the last of the second bottle into Susanna's glass. No, you should drink it, she said. It's really for you. He's had enough, Merritt said. It was good, though, wasn't it? Fabulously good. Makes you realize things, oh, I don't know, she said, various things. It would be nice to have always drunk it. She said it in a way that was enormously touching. They were all feeling better. They sat for a while and finally made their way out. The bar was still noisy. Merritt stared out the window as they drove. She was tired. They were going home now. The wind was moving in the tops of the shadowy trees. In the night sky there were brilliant blue clouds shining as if in daylight. "'It's very beautiful tonight, isn't it?' Merritt said. "'I'm struck by that. Am I mistaken?' No, Walter cleared his throat. It's beautiful. Have you noticed it? she asked Susanna. I'm sure you have. How old are you? I forget. Twenty nine. Twenty nine, Merritt said. She was silent for a few moments. We never had children, she said. Do you wish you had children? Oh sometimes, I suppose. I haven't thought about it too much. It's one of those things you have to be married to really think about. You'll be married, Merritt said. Yes, perhaps. "'You could be married in a minute,' Merritt said. "'She was tired when they reached the house. "'They sat together in the living room "'as if they had come from a big party, "'but were not quite ready for bed. "'Walter was thinking what lay ahead, "'the light that would come on in the refrigerator "'when the door was opened. "'The needle of the syringe was sharp, "'the stainless steel point cut at an angle, "'and like a razor. "'He was going to have to insert it into her vein. "'He tried not to dwell on it. "'He would manage somehow.' he was becoming more and more nervous. "'I remember my mother,' Merritt said. "'She wanted to tell me things at the end, "'things that had happened when I was young. "'Ray Mahan had gone to bed with Teddy Hudner. "'Anne Herring had, too. "'They were married women. "'Teddy Hudner wasn't married. "'He worked in advertising and was always playing golf. "'My mother went on like that, who slept with whom. "'That's what she wanted to tell me, finally. "'Of course, at the time,' Ray Mahan was really something. Then Merritt said, I think I'll go upstairs. She stood up. I'm all right, she told her husband. Don't come up just yet. Good night, Susanna. When there were just the two of them, Susanna said, I have to go. No, don't. Please don't go. Stay here. She shook her head. I can't, she said. Please, you have to. I'm going to go upstairs in a little while, but when I come down, I can't be alone. Please. There was silence. Susanna. They sat without speaking. "'I know you've thought all this out,' she said. "'Yes, absolutely.' After a few minutes, Walter looked at his watch. He began to say something, but then did not. A little later, he looked at it again, then left the room. The kitchen was in the shape of an L, old-fashioned and unplanned, with a white enamel sink and wooden cabinets painted many times. In the summers, they had made preserves here when boxes of strawberries were sold at the stairway going down to the train platform in the city. Unforgettable strawberries, their fragrance like perfume. There were still some jars. He went to the refrigerator and opened the door. There it was, the small etched lines on the side. There were ten cc's. He tried to think of a way not to go on. If he dropped the syringe, broke it somehow and said his hand had been shaking. He took the saucer and covered it with a dish towel. It was worse that way. He put it down and picked up the syringe, holding it in various ways, finally almost concealed against his leg. He felt light as a sheet of paper, devoid of strength. Merritt had prepared herself. She had made up her eyes and put on an ivory satin nightgown low and back. It was the gown she would be wearing in the next world. She had made an effort to believe in an afterworld. The crossing was by boat, something the ancients knew with certainty. Over her collarbones lay strands of a silver necklace. She was weary. The wine had had an effect, but she was not calm. In the doorway, Walter stood as if waiting for permission. She looked at him without speaking. He had it in his hand, she saw. Her heart skidded nervously, but she was determined not to show it. Well, darling, she said. He tried to reply. She had on fresh lipstick, he saw. Her mouth looked dark. There were some photographs she had arranged around her on the bed. Come in. No, I'll be back, he managed to say. He hurried downstairs. He was going to fail. He had to have a drink. The living room was empty. Susanna had gone. He had never felt more completely alone. He went into the kitchen and poured some vodka, odorless and clear, into a glass and quickly drank it. He went slowly upstairs again and sat on the bed near his wife. The vodka was making him drunk. He felt unlike himself. Walter, she said. Yes, this is the right thing. She reached to take his hand. Somehow it frightened him, as if it might mean an appeal to come with her. You know, she said evenly, I've loved you as much as I've ever loved anyone in the world. I'm sounding maudlin, I know. Ah, Marat, he cried. Did you love me? His stomach was churning in despair. Yes, he said, yes. Take care of yourself, she said. Yes. He was in good health, as it happened, a little heavier than he might have been, but nevertheless... His roundish, scholarly stomach was covered with a layer of soft, dark hair his hands and nails well cared for. She leaned forward and embraced him. She kissed him. For a moment, she was not afraid. She would live again, be young again, as she once had been. She held out her arm. On the inside, two veins the color of Verdigris were visible. He began to press to make them rise. Her head was turned away. Do you remember, she said to him, when I was working at Bates and we met that first time? I knew right away. The needle was wavering as he tried to position it. I was lucky, she said. I was very lucky. He was barely breathing. He waited, but she did not say anything more. Hardly believing what he was doing, he pushed the needle in. It was effortless and slowly injected the contents. He heard her sigh. Her eyes were closed as she lay back. Her face was peaceful. She had embarked. My God, he thought, my God. He had known her when she was in her twenties, long-legged and innocent. Now he had slipped her as in a burial at sea beneath the flow of time. Her hand was still warm. He took it and held it to his lips. He pulled the bedspread up to cover her legs. The house was incredibly quiet. It had fallen into silence, the silence of a fatal act. He could not hear the wind. He went slowly downstairs. A sense of relief came over him, enormous relief and sadness. Outside, the monumental blue clouds filled the night. He stood for a few minutes and then saw, sitting in her car, motionless, Susanna. She rolled down the window as he approached. You didn't go, he said. I couldn't stay in there. It's over, he said. Come in, I'm going to get a drink. She stood in the kitchen with him, her arms folded, a hand on each elbow. It wasn't terrible, he said. It's just that I feel... I don't know. They drank standing there. Does she really want me to come, Susanna said. Darling, she suggested it. She didn't know a thing. I wonder... Believe me, nothing. She put down her drink. No, drink it, he said. It'll help. I feel funny, she said. Funny? You're not feeling sick? I don't know. Don't be sick. Here, come with me. Wait, I'll get you some water. She was concentrating on breathing evenly. You'd better lie down for a bit, he said. No, I'm all right. Come. He led her in her short skirt and blouse to a room to one side of the front door and made her sit on the bed. She was taking slow breaths. Susanna? Yes. I need you. She more or less heard him. Her head was thrown back like that of a woman longing for God. I shouldn't have drunk so much, she murmured. He began to unbutton her blouse. No, she said, trying to rebutton it. He was unfastening her brassiere. Her gorgeous breasts emerged. He could not take his eyes from them. He kissed them passionately. She felt herself moved to the side as he pulled down the cover of the white sheets. She tried to speak again, but he put his hand over her mouth and pushed her down. He devoured her, shuddering as if in fright at the end and holding her to him tightly. They fell into a profound sleep. In earliest morning... Light was clear and intensely bright. The house, standing in its path, became even whiter. It stood out from its neighbors, more pure and serene. The shadow of a tall elm beside it was traced on it as finely as if drawn by a pencil. The pale curtains hung unmoving. Nothing stirred within. In back was the wide lawn across which Susanna had been idly strolling as part of a garden tour on the day he had first seen her, shapely and tall. It was a vision he had not been able to erase, though the rest had started later, when she came to redo the garden with merit. They sat at the table, drinking coffee. They were complicit, not long-risen, and not regarding one another too closely. Walter was admiring her, however. Without makeup, she was even more appealing. Her long hair was not combed. She seemed very approachable. There were calls that would have to be made, but he was not thinking of them. It was still too early. He was thinking past this day, mornings to come. At first, he hardly heard the sound behind him. It was a footstep, and then, slowly, another. Susanna turned white as Marat came unsteadily down the stairs. The makeup on her face was stale, and her dark lipstick showed fissures. He stared in disbelief. "'Something went wrong,' she said. "'Are you all right?' he asked foolishly. "'No, you must have done it wrong.' "'Oh, God,' Walter murmured. "'She sat weakly on the bottom step. "'She did not seem to notice Susanna. "'I thought you were going to help me,' she said, and began to cry. "'I can't understand it,' he said. "'It's all wrong,' Merritt was repeating. "'Then, to Susanna, "'You're still here.' I was just leaving, Susanna said. I don't understand, Walter said again. I have to do it all over, Merritt sobbed. I'm sorry, he said. I'm so sorry. He could think of nothing more to say. Susanna had gone to get her clothes. She left by the front door. That was how she and Walter came to part upon being discovered by his wife. They met two or three times afterward, at his insistence, but to no avail. Whatever holds people together was gone. She told him she could not help it. That was just the way it was.
0: That was Tom McGuane, reading Last Night by James Salter. The story appeared in The New Yorker in 2002 and is the title story of Salter's most recent book of short stories, published in paperback by Vintage.
2: At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
0: But Tom, the title, Last Night, has a double meaning. This is meant to be Merritt's Last Night Alive but it also implies this perspective of someone looking back from the next day and saying you know look this is what happened last night and of course that double meaning comes very much into play in the story do you think that this is why he chose this title do you think he meant there to be a joke with it within it
1: well i wonder if he did um i think the double meaning really is that it's not only the last night for Merritt was dying but it's the last night for walter and his ill conceived romance with the uh, gardener girl. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think it makes that point at the end of the story. She says that it's over. That's the way it is. Uh, there last night as well. And I think the you know the irony of the story, in fact, is that Salter take, has kind of taken the position that this is, the, at the end, that this is how the romance failed between Walter and Susanna, which is really twisting the knife in my sense.
0: Yeah, there's so much going on in the story. And it seems... Somehow, to me, tonally unstable. It's I, I'm not quite sure if we're supposed to think of it as as utterly tragic or even as, as sort of funny on some level.
1: And, and it's sort of morbid, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I I saw it in an, in an odd way as a bit of a, a a bit of a horror story. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere is is sort of doom laden and alcohol laden, and it's uh, remorselessly twilight. You know.
0: That image of the dead woman kind of stumbling down the stairs in the morning is definitely oh, a, a horror image.
1: It's awful. Yeah. But, you know, it, when, when you kind of go back to the arrangement of the story and 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 you start asking questions like, why on earth did they have Susanna go to the dinner in the first place? Mm-hmm. Then, then I, I think it becomes a little bit kind of troubling. But that always seems to be the case with, with stories that really move you very much. I mean, there's some wild risk early on. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the risk.
0: Well, now, Merritt is the one who insists on Susanna coming. And do you think do you think that's because she knows about the affair, or because she doesn't?
1: Well, I I took it that she did not know. Uh huh. And in fact, Salter goes to some pains to make it plausible to us. That he says they'd ask Susanna rather than someone closer, like her sister, was mm-hmm. too grief filled. But the sister, you know, appears uh, that moment. It never reappears. I mean, she just serves a a purpose there to make uh, the presence of Susanna a bit more plausible. Um, We we kind of have to swallow that, I think, don't you?
0: Yeah, there's, there's that one strange line of merits, though, where she says, you know, you could be married in a minute. And I I do a double take there because I wonder if she's saying you could be married to Walter, <laughs> you know, by tomorrow, <laughs> you know.
1: Well, that is a very catching line, and I paused over it yeah. uh, without figuring out quite what it meant. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was kind of one of those sort of upper class remarks. Oh, you could be married in a minute, right? You know, you could be a tennis champion tomorrow.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also it's also ambiguous, and who who has the last laugh here? I mean, how how does everything go so wrong? What what do you think's happened with the the dosage or the the shot. What's going on?
1: You know, I, I suppose if you like the story less than I do, you might say, well, the, the uh, dosage went wrong because they need merit to come back down the stairs. Right. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the case. But each one of these things that happens, I mean, from Walter's stuttering at the beginning, it seems to be de- designed to sort of peel away these layers of, of weakness mm-hmm. and to reveal How weak he's been from the very beginning and how misplaced the very impressive merits, uh, faith in him and love for him has been all along, which is what, to me, makes it feel like such a strong and and kind of tragic story. Mm -hmm. I don't care anything about Walter at the end. I wish he would go away.
0: Yeah, well, he gets he gets nothing out of this either. Why, Why do you think he doesn't respond to her confession of love? Why can't he just suck it up and, you know, say he loves her, too?
1: I mean, it's just, you know, she seems to be just such a substantial person, and he seems in the end, you know, it's a terrible thing to have said about translators. <laughs> <laughs> By calling him a translator, it's as if to say he's at one remove from life, or from reality, mm-hmm. and that the contrast between a, a someone who, who, even dying, has her feet so thoroughly on the ground casts such a coruscating light on, on Walter. And it casts kind of a coruscating light on on those of us who kind of liked Walter through most of the story uh-huh. you know I mean that's why i think I think you feel kind of nailed by this uh this thing when you first read it i mean i I really physically cringed when I read it first, yeah. I didn't know why i mean i I didn't know whether I felt guilty or or I despised the uh more or less more main character. I didn't know what what made me so uncomfortable
0: yeah, Salter often starts his stories kind of in the middle of a scene as as he does here. And he doles out the information in such a calculated way. You know, he got these tiny facts yes. that that don't tell us very much until very late in the story. And of course, he has you know saves the biggest surprise for the last few paragraphs. It's so withholding. Is is that what makes the story work?
1: Well, he he starts he starts, it, he starts it right in the beginning. It's quite systematic. Yeah. I mean, the very second paragraph of the story it says he was sitting with Susanna, a family friend, and the next word is finally, you know, as though we've been waiting for what's about to happen. So exactly as you say, we're kind of thrust into the middle of this thing. Yeah. And then from then on, it's quite impressive to me the way he builds this kind of doomed atmosphere. I mean, the the houses are so uh, sepulchral, you know, they're just weird shadows and the clouds at night are big and bulky and blue. And it's a a ghostly kind of atmosphere to start with.
0: And then a ghost walks into it.
1: But a ghost who thinks that um, she's going to meet her old friends in the next world or something, and she's dressing for that. And part of it is you, you suspect she's well rid of Walter, even if she has to get out this way.
0: And do you think Walter is doing this for the right reasons or, or very wrong ones?
1: Well, do you remember after he he gives Merritt the purportedly fa- fatal injection, mm-hmm. he comes down? He's First thing that Salter says about him is that he's vastly relieved. Yeah. And and he kind of adds a bit of an afterthought. Well, he was also very sad. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And
1: at that point, you know, you're really wondering about Walter. He's so sad about what? That that part of his life is gone or that Merritt is dying.
0: Yeah. And he never goes back up to check.
1: Yeah.
0: You mentioned Yates and Cheever earlier, but the, the terseness of the prose style and also this sort of concept of men drinking too much, misbehaving, it's very it reminded me very much of hemingway. I mean, I, yeah, me I, too. I know Salter sort of claims that his influences were more Thomas Mann and uh, Gide and so on, but you just feel this force of hemingway behind behind what he does as well.
1: Yeah, and it's very it, it, it is generally very clipped, you know, and and uh, he it, it works so well because often he's he's so apposite, you know, and the things he selects on one of the ones that really stays in my mind is when Marat is remembering her first home, the one she grew up in, and remembers her mother stretching out an arm in the, in the lamplight to adjust a bracelet. Mm-hmm. Little things like that Salter does a lot of that are so spot on that kind of draw you into his story. Mm-hmm.
0: There's something, you know, the, it, this is a tragic story, as we said, and it is also a bit of a comedy of errors. And I, in some of the kind of antic behavior here, I get a little bit of a flash of what you do sometimes, this kind of the, the craziness of the plot kind of building up and turning in on itself. Do you, do you think that you two have, have had some influence on each other?
1: Well, uh, you know, I never really know for, about such things except that I kind of look back on writers who struck me as being just wonderful writers. And I know that uh, they got they got under my skin in some way that surely is coming out, comes out in my own work. Mm-hmm. And I've admired Salter for a long time. It's funny, uh, not long ago, I was in a rainstorm in Bozeman, Montana, standing in a doorway, and some fellow in a blue blazer jogged by the doorway, and I said, God, that looks like James Salter. <laughs> Can't be. Well, it was James Salter. His son lives here.
0: <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. Thank you, Tom.
1: Thank you. Happy New Year. Feel better.
0: <laughs> you too. Okay. You can read several short stories by Tom McGuane on our website, newyorker.com. His latest collection is Gallatin Canyon, published in paperback by Vintage. You can find many previous fiction podcasts at NewYorker.com or in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.